0: How are you guys doing this morning? Good. Uh, Wayne is not, and the Griswolds are not here this morning. They are on their way, I think right now, to Sacramento. To uh, These Griswolds are here. Thank you for the correction. The other Griswolds are not here. The one who would be standing right here right now. Uh, they're on their way to Rayleigh Field for Elias' Little League team. Gets to go be with the Rivercats today. Um, And so that's a big day for them, and they get to spend as a family. And for those of you who know Wayne and he loves baseball, I think it's a big day for him too. So I am preaching this morning, uh, and I'm looking forward to it. I want to start by presenting you with a uh, possible scenario. Imagine this. It's actually supposed to be a little bit more deeper, like the movies, when it's going to be a really dark movie. Anyways, imagine this. A world where you and the people like you are under constant attack. Attack from the wide majority of the people in the world. And they not only disagree with the way that you live, but they proactively seek to make sure that everyone conforms to their train of thought. These other people are consuming vast amounts of people's minds at a time, and along their path they have denied the very way, or are trying to deny the very way by which you seek to live your life. It's a world that continually seeks to overthrow you, discourage you, discredit you, contends everything you claim, and wants nothing more than to be rid and put an end to your way of life. They want to eat away at your core, your source, and make you see that it isn't even possible to be relevant or considered serious or to be a serious influence and live like you live. I think that this scenario is the world that we live in, and it describes the culture of today. We're going to be in Psalms this morning, and it's been a good challenge to work through Psalms because uh, there are many Psalms of joy and praise, but there are also many of laments and sadness and mourning, and this morning is one of those Psalms of the latter, full of distaste and dissatisfaction with the world that we live in today. I just read for you a very bleak scenario and made the claim that this is true for all of us, and I think this is similar to what David, the psalmist, was thinking when he wrote Psalm 14, which is where we'll be at this morning. And I just want to point and state out, uh, point out this morning that the passage today is about believers in Christ being a, in a world full of sin, and that sin that every person is born with is constantly and automatically driving us away from God, and apart from God One is against God. They are godless. We are all, as the Bible would say, without God, fools. But there is hope, and that hope is found in Christ, and that gives us courage and uh, boldness to be in a world that doesn't know Him. And this is important to every person in this room, and this is especially vital if we are to be a church in today's world. We must know how to live in a world with a godless culture. So, if you want to turn in your Bibles or scroll on your phones to Psalm 14, let's read this together. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. be glad let's pray God we come before you Lord and we uh, we need you we need you every second of the day and apart from you there is no good and uh, we live in a world today that is corrupt is is fallen and the evidence every day uh, Of just how much the world needs you. And so I pray that this morning through your word that we would be encouraged, that we would be empowered to live for you, God, to be emboldened to take a stand uh, all the time, uh, not just at church, not just with our fellow believers, but wherever you have us day to day, that we would live for you and be a light for you. So we pray as we hear the truth. Uh, that would, it would go straight to our hearts, Lord, that you would do a work in our lives. And we give this whole morning to you. Amen. A little bit of a background on Psalm 14. Uh, this is in continuation of many song, Psalms of Lament. And David, the author here, is inviting his people, the Israelites, uh, God's chosen nation, to lament with him and to feel his pains toward the situation that he sees and feels at the time. And this is a community, community uh, lamenting for the corruption on earth. They're mourning the fact that mankind does not see God but instead uh, treats God's people cruelly. And this is a point uh, not just made in the Psalms but in the entirety of the Bible and that is that if not with God then one is without God and against God. They are godless. And there's no in-between and this is because of the idea of worship this is something that God's been putting on my heart lately, is what do people worship? Well, one worships what is in one's heart. So if they do not have God in their heart, then they are worshiping something or someone else. It may be themselves, it may be money, it may be career, it may be another religion with other gods, it may be uh, science or history or culture, it may even be food or Netflix. I think Netflix can be a god for some. But we worship what is in our hearts. And the point is that if not God, then we're worshiping something or someone else. And this is what David sees in the world around him. And it brings him to this state of frustration and sadness, disheartenment. And I would even say a righteous anger. It's an anger for David because it's not just the world that he lived in, but that he was a part of, that he was involved with, that he interacted with. One thing I appreciate about this psalm and other psalms like it, these psalms of lament... Uh, and even specifically Psalms 53, which is a almost verbatim mirror of Psalm 14, is that its inclusion in the Bible tells us something. It tells us that it's okay to be frustrated, it's okay to be discouraged and disheartened, and it tells us that we can communicate those feelings, those negative feelings towards God. It also teaches us how to communi- communicate those feelings to God. And this is what I want to unpack this morning is this process that David went through in this psalm. but I think this is important because sometimes I think that we as Christians are made to feel like we have to be positive. We have to be positive in the world today. there's no room for negative. Um, I know that I felt that pressure when someone else is dishing out the discouragement or uh, disheartenment about the world that we live in. I feel the immediate tug to just say, "No, wait, God is here, there is positive." But I think I miss an essential step, which is just acknowledging what they said. I miss what Psalm 14 is, and it's just to acknowledge the step of communicating, voicing, and expressing the emotion and the thought. And God lets David do that and hears David as he does that. And I know that I've learned this in relationships and even in marriage, that it's so important just to be heard. It is so important to be heard. Heard and acknowledged, and so I think that God was allowing David to have this moment of expressing this to God. But like I said, we're going to look at the process by which David writes this psalm, and he doesn't end at a point of negativity, but David looks to God for hope. And so there are three ways that I want to break down this psalm. Uh, Verses one through four, I think, talk about what a fool is and how foolishness is spreading. Verses 5 through 6 will cover how, despite the fool's attempts, God is still our refuge. And then verse 7 is a prayer for God's people. I want to dissect this passage, get our hands dirty while digging through verse by verse, and then I want to ask just a couple questions about how this psalm affects us today. So, number one, what a fool is and how foolishness is spreading. Uh, It starts off with answering the question, Who is a fool? A fool is someone who says there is no God. We have to understand, too, that when David is writing this, the word fool uh, is not like we would use fool today. We barely even use the word fool. But... Maybe a more modern translation of the word that has similar weight and meaning might be an idiot or a moron. And I know that comes across negative, but it's meant to be that. It's meant to be something that isn't said jokingly uh, about someone's actions, but truly to describe the person in their heart and how they are a fool. They are unwise. And David goes further to say that uh, they do not acknowledge God. There is no God. So basically from this passage, a fool is someone who denies the truth and wisdom and need for God. And it's very clear that you don't want to be a fool. And then David says that they do abominable deeds. And this is describing actions and behavior that are idolatrous, putting anything else above God and in the place of God. And this wrong and foolish act being described in this passage is an act directly contrary to God the King and Creator over all. And when we think about this, this may make a lot of sense. We know that a fool says there is no God and we also know that that apart from God there is no good. So in talking about the godless, we already know that there is no good in them because they do not acknowledge God. And no good leads to being corrupt and abominable deeds. What else would there be to turn to? So again, one will worship what's in one's heart and since they have no God, they worship anything other than God and it means that they are corrupt. And so verse 1 defines a fool, then proceeds to prove itself true by saying, there is none who does good, because they are apart from God. We come to verse 2, and God in heaven is searching for those who are righteous. And this idea of God searching up in heaven, uh, looking down on there, searching for those who are righteous, reminds us of maybe a couple other passages uh, in Genesis, of God in Noah's time, looking on the world, looking for those who love him. And he didn't find any except for the family of Noah. And we know that what he did in that case. And he wiped out the earth with a flood. And then we come to Abraham and Lot and talking about Sodom and Gomorrah. And God is, again, looking for those who love him. And he can't even find five. And so he destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And we come to Psalm 14 and we see something similar. God is, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. And I think that Psalm 14 kind of sheds a different light than those other stories. I think I, I love this part. I think God wants us. He wants to be in relationship with us, and there's intimate relationship with God, awaiting for those who pursue Him. One of my favorite authors, John Mark Comer, says he taught us to call God Father, the most intimate relational name there is. And as one poet said so eloquently said God waits to be wanted he's aching for relationship with you and so with that in mind and we look back at verse 2 I love what this conveys God is looking down not to exact justice and to uh, be looking to destroy anyone but he's looking for those who want him he's looking for those who want relationship with him he's eager for relationship with his people he wants us to know Him so that we can have intimate relationship with the God and Creator of all. The best relationship that we could ever have, that's what He wants for us. I tell this to the students and the youth all the time, that the best relationship they can ever have is with God, not with anyone else. And I say that because I think we all did in junior high and high school. We have a romantic view of the future, and we think that that other person, girl or guy, is out there, and that is the essential Relationship, the best that there will ever be. And I want to remind them and all of us that God is that ultimate relationship. There is no closer or better relationship. And God wants that. He's looking down from heaven and he is looking for those eagerly that want to have relationship with him. So God is doing that, but the world is fallen. And in verse 3, we see that they have all turned aside. And this is said, In the same way that Paul later says in Romans to describe both the Greeks and the Jews, all are under sin. There is no in-between between between following God and not following God. You either are you or not. And it includes everyone on the whole earth. If you are born, you are dealing with this issue of your stance on God. And like I said at the beginning, we worship what is in our hearts. So if not God in our hearts, then what is worshiping something else? And this is what David is saying they have all turned aside. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. He repeats what he says in verse 1 just to emphasize, look, there really is no one. There is no one who does any good. And then in verse 4, David is thinking, I think, rhetorically asking, uh, don't they know that they're wrong? Verse 4 reads, Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread who do not call upon the Lord? The they in this verse is not talking about the people who fear God, but the people who are looking to do cruelly against God, the godless. And he's saying, because those who believe in God call on him, those who deny God, the fool, the godless, they don't even have a God to call upon. And these people are trying to devour, they're trying to consume and eat up those who follow God. They are ravenous to overtake, to win over, at this time, the Israelites. <laughs> And what I mean by this is the philosophy and the mindset of the fools, the godless culture is trying to invade the God-fearing culture and to sway them and win them over and believe that they don't need a God. And that battle is still happening today. David is seeing it as thousands of years ago and we can, in our present time, know that this is true, that the godless culture in our world is trying to take over our culture as a church They are overtaking our God-centered culture and it can even look like permeating our culture at first, not just trying to overtake it in one fell swoop, but it's working its way in. And there are several instances where the truth of the gospel is being compromised in the church. Even today, on the East Coast, there's a lesbian couple who co-pastor a Baptist church. And a church uh, can claim... It's a different church now it can claim that Jesus and the Bible need to be separate. And one doesn't need the Bible to understand Jesus. And that just takes you down such a slippery, dangerous slope. There are even instances in the secular world, the godless culture, where they seek to have church but without God. You can attend a secular church today where there is no God. They call it a church. They, have a, they call it a congregation. And they even have a clergy, which I don't understand... At all, when there is no God in the equation, I think one of the biggest ways that I see this happening where I see verse uh, a four eating up the people, just trying to devour them is in our young people, and they grow up in the church and they are part of youth group and other small groups, but then something happens as soon as they graduate, and you guys have heard this before and Maybe know it firsthand. When they're no longer under the parent, parental realm and forcing, forced to go to church, they are devoured by the world's philosophy and this godless culture. Even now I know of some students in the youth group who are open about it, and they just say that, yeah, I'm going to church right now because my parents are making me, but as soon as I graduate, I have no plans of going to church or going to a college group or pursuing Christ at all. That's my parents' thing. It's not mine. They just plan to leave God and church behind. So verse 4 is definitely true for us today. There are so many ways that the foolish are trying to ensnare God's people. And so from verses 1 through 4, we have the fool who denies God. And we have this foolishness trying to spread to God's people. And that brings us to the second point. Despite the fool's attempts, we are safe with God as our refuge. Verses 5-6 through read, There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. There they are in great terror. These people who are against God are going to face God's wrath. Because Yahweh is with the righteous. David is assuring the people that whether the godless know it or not, they are going to face the wrath of God. And there is no greater terror than facing the wrath of the sovereign, supreme ruler and judge and king over all. And when I hear the the word terror, I think of the moment for them when it is revealed to them who God is on that moment of judgment. And they see that they have been opposing God this whole time and they'll see that they are in complete ruin and have to face eternal judgment. This is a terror that, uh, this is the ultimate terror. We all may have fears. We may have fears of uh, things we're afraid of right now or fears of the future or fears of uh, what will happen in the future, but nothing, no kind of fear is like this, this great terror facing God's judgment. And again, this emphasizes the point that if not with God as God's people, then it is against God but against God uh, is not the side to be on. And we see the momentum of this psalm shift from focusing on the negative and the discouragement and this, the disheartening status of the world to awe and praise for God and the good that he brings. For God is with the generation of the righteous. And then, verse 6, that they would shame the plans of the poor. And I think this conveys the superior attitude and mindset that the evildoers have, the fools the people who deny God, they have this idea that to believe in God is to be less than. God is a crutch in life. And so the fools try to shame the poor, but we know that God is with the righteous and their attacks, their offenses will not prevail as long as we have God as our refuge. In the world that we live in with the godless all around us, we must remember and take joy in and praise Him for the fact that He protects us. David uses the term, and I think this is great and shows so much, the term refuge for who God is. I think this is revealing in a couple different ways. The idea of being a refuge is a common theme in the Bible, even specifically in the book of Psalms, because David, the psalmist of many psalms, is often running from Saul or the Philistines, and he is in this place of needing protection from God. And when the term refuge also implies refugees and refugees are fleeing from uh, attack and they're fleeing from something that is chasing them, that is after them, that is out to do them harm. And so it may mean that we are refugees fleeing from the people of the world who are out to consume us, to devour us with the same thought of life without God. And we have God as our protection. We are being protected from the ways and thoughts of this world. And some of these thoughts that I mentioned already, uh, but they can go outside of just inside of our church, these thoughts of a life without God include abortion or gender issues, taking one one's own life, and, and so much more that I didn't want to get into this morning, going into all the details of the discouraging, I'm sure that we are all aware of them, but what I did want to... Emphasizes that God is our refuge in all of that. God is our safe place. As we talk to people, as people are battling their stance on those issues, uh, the encouragement is to run to God. God isn't a part of those equations in the way that they convey it. The godless world is proactively trying to devour us, and so we need, to, we need the protection and refuge of God. The righteous need to proactively run to God, we don't just uh, we, we can't have this mentality that I know God is my refuge, but running to God is only in times of need. It should be all the time, and I think it was a huge comfort to read this and to know that the God of the universe is our refuge, who will protect us from the enemy. When under attack, we're not fleeing to an option that'll do, uh, uh, that'll just get us past whatever hardship or struggle. I know sometimes when I think of a safe house or a refuge, I think of a shelter that is adequate but not that great. It'll do, it'll, it'll protect, uh, but I wouldn't live in it. I wouldn't want to be in it for a long time. But I think God redefines that idea of a refuge. And he is the ultimate place of safety and comfort and security. There is no better place than him. God can't be our second option, our backup option in times of need. He is the place that we should be dwelling in, that we should be at all the time. And so he's there for us. God is a refuge to God's people. And despite the attempts of the foolish, God protects us. And this brings me to the third part. And this is prayer, the third part of our chapter here, prayer for God's people. The last verse completes this process by which David writes this psalm where we see the conveying of frustration to praising God and then he ends here with a prayer for the future promise of salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. We have a prayer for those who are righteous and seek restoration from their place of trouble. It's a reminder to look forward to the restoration found in the Messiah. The Lord restores the fortunes of his people. And this is referring specifically to the rising up and the lifting up that God does for us from a place of suffering or affliction to a place of prominence. And so we all know that while on earth we will never experience full prominence, this will not be that place. This is the place of suffering and affliction, uh, but we can look forward to when God raises us up and, rest- and restores us fully in heaven with him. We also need to remember that this is a communal song for the people to sing. So this is not just David looking forward to the coming Messiah, but all of God's people singing together their declaration of firm, solid hope in Jesus. And at this time, I want to draw our attention to Romans, because this is something that Paul says in his book in Romans. uh, He references Psalm 14, and I think it'll be very beneficial for us to do what. Paul does. So, Romans 3, you can turn there if you'd like, I'll read it. But Romans uh, 3, verse 9, starting in verse 9, all the way through verse 19, is referencing Psalm 14. And I'll read verses 11 through 12 and verse 18. I'll start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Greeks and Jews, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So, Paul is writing to the Romans. He's looking at the world that Paul's in, and he's seeing the same exact thing that the world around him acknowledges no God, that they are fools. And so he quotes David in saying this, but it is a little different. Um, There's a major difference in the way that David ends Psalm 14 and his rant on the world, and the way that Paul ends his talk about no one being righteous, and that is the way in which they talk about the coming salvation. David prays for, the, for coming salvation and restoration in verse 7, referring to the restoration coming from Zion. And Paul talks about the promise of salvation through the life of Jesus Christ. David is pointing forward to Christ, and Paul is pointing not only backwards to the life of Christ, but also to the Holy Spirit and the righteousness that everyone can experience through faith in God. There's a progression in Psalm 14 and a progression that Paul points to as well that focuses on Christ. And it goes from identifying the fool, looking around the world, being discouraged, to then focusing, praising God for who he is and for his protection, and then identifying that all hope lies in Christ. And as Paul says, all fools now have hope. Romans 3, 23-24 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So whereas David is praying and thinking and singing of just his people, the Israelites, Paul is saying this is for everyone. Everyone can be a fool, and everyone now has hope in Christ. Restoration we have restoration for those who are denying God in their lives right now. There is still hope for the fools and for the godless. And we know this because at some point we were all fools. But Christ saved us. So we can pray. We can be like David. We can pray for the continuing strength of believers as they trust God as their refuge. We can pray that as the world around us continues to be contentious and contrary and corrupt, that believers feel the protection and security found in Christ alone. And then we can also point people to Christ. And maybe it's to those who are being contrary and corrupt, or maybe it's a reminder to those who claim to believe, but we can point to Christ as the one who has redeemed us, who has saved us, and who has claimed us as his. There is confidence in Jesus. And David prays with confidence for restoration, and Paul declares with confidence the promise of Christ, who came and died and rose again. So we pray for God's people. Well, now I want to switch and and just kind of ask some questions about how does this pertain to our world today? What does it mean for us? Now, in my time of preparation and prayer of what I was going to preach on, I knew only that I wanted to stay in the Psalms, slash I had been instructed to stay in the Psalms. (laughs) And I didn't want to take the easy road by just praying or just uh, preaching on the Psalms that I was familiar with or the ones that only point to God's goodness. Um, though those are really good, I, I wanted to challenge myself. And Dr. Lawson, a well renowned preacher of our time, said that if you want to learn how to preach and go to the next level, preach the Psalms. I think he even said it might put hair on our chest <laughs> if I were to do that. So after I preached Psalm 8, uh, I was just uh, reading through. I started, and just started reading afterwards, and I came to Psalm 14, and it's, uh, it just struck me. And it stuck out to me because of this idea, idea of being in a world that is trying so hard to be godless resonated. This world is constantly changing, but consistently seems to be going in one direction, and that is away from God. Taking God out of the equation for explanations, for standards by which the world can live by, is all too common and happening in realms that have devastating consequences. And I talked about them, some of them already, but for instance, uh, taking God out of creation leads to questioning whether gender has a purpose. Taking the purpose out of male and female leads to wrong views of what natural is. Uh, and even denying that there is a natural to male and female it means that you can now have conversations as to whether breastfeeding should be called natural because only a woman can do it, not a man can do it. And we are all equal because there is no gender. That's a legitimate conversation going around in medical fields right now. So it's happening to us. It's happening in schools at a younger, younger age uh, that they're trying to take God out of our culture uh, in every way. And I'm constantly taken aback when I'm in conversation with junior high and high school students about when I hear what is now normal for them uh, or what is normal to know about or accept as normal in other people's lives, in their friends' lives, in their peers' lives, what they just have to accept as normal because it wasn't normal for me um, and it's not normal by the Bible standards. And so this psalm struck me in a way in which how to communicate my frustrations and concerns in a healthy and biblical way to God, as well as how to process my emotions and feelings about the world that is so corrupt. And like I said, it helped me to just even know that I can communicate those to God and that it shouldn't end in a negative but in a positive and focusing on the hope of Christ. It also led to three questions which is how I want to end this morning. I want to ask these three questions and answer them to a degree, but really allow you to answer them more personally after. So the first question, how does this psalm, Psalm 14, affect my worship of God? How does this psalm affect my worship of God? Well, the first thing is that knowing that God knows the enemy, the strategy of the enemy, the, the ways the enemy tries to attack <laughs> Uh, And is not fooled by them, and is not taken by them, is awesome. It is so good to know that the God I worship and follow and believe in cannot be uh, taken down, is not at all, at all fooled by any of this. The enemy tries and tries in multiple ways and will forever try, but God is greater still. This world has been against God. Since the fall, there's nothing that surprises God. And there's just so much comfort in that. So when David writes about the refuge, there really is this sense of comfort and safety in who God is. How does this psalm affect my worship of God? It also says that this is a heart issue when it comes to the personal worship and belief of God. In verse 1, the fool says in his heart, the heart needs to be engaged. This is more than just doing the things that a Christian does. It's more than just going to church or midweek or uh, listening to certain music um, or living in a certain way. But the heart has to be engaged, involved, and the one leading the charge to be in relationship with God. When we ask, How does this affect my worship of God? we want to be receptive of God and the work that He is doing in our lives. When verse 2 is happening and God is looking down from heaven on the children of man, I get this, again, I'm a visual person, so I just kind of get this like, airplane view of God doing that. I'm sure that's not what it's like. But for the moment, he's going over and he's just looking over the world. And I just want to be, we should all be, if our hearts are engaged, the ones waving our hands over our heads saying, I'm here, God. I want to be in relationship with you. I want to pursue you. I want that with you, God. Is it possible that a fool says these things about God in his heart because he's never, never given God access to his heart? Maybe the fool has been selfish and wants to remain God in his own life. We don't want to be like this. This brings up the terms of hard-hearted or cold-hearted. We want to be open-hearted, open to God and desiring worship with him. So what that looks like practically and every day, that's for you to answer. But how does this psalm affect your worship? The second question is, how does this psalm affect my witness? The world is contentious. They are not just satisfied to say that you live this way, I'll live this way. But it's a turf war with the world. And they are constantly infringing upon our beliefs and our way of life. And so we need to accept that. We need to accept that there is opposition and we need to be prepared. We need to do what Jesus said and to love our enemy. What does that look like? Again, that's, I don't know your enemies, but uh, that's for you to wrestle with. And, but I'll say this, for example... A Christian does not gain any ground and does not honor God in making fun of people who struggle with gender gender identity issues. We do it by having conversations with people with those struggles, uh, with our minds constantly on their soul, not focused on their specific sin, but on their soul. And we can look to the example of Jesus in, in his ministry and the people that he came across. And once they knew who he was, They were confronted with the truth of God's character and His holy person. It was then that they were radically changed. We have to let the Spirit do the conviction and not that can't be our focus. So how does Psalm 14 affect our witness? It encourages us to be prepared in this world but always to point to Christ and the hope that is found in Him. And then the last question, how does Psalm 14 affect our life as a church. How does it affect us as a church? Well, God is our refuge. And in some ways, this church is a safe house. The last thing we want to do is to face real battle from the world and then come to the church and also face battle from within. The church is supposed to be a place of refuge from the battle. So again answer on your own and wrestle with this but something that came to mind is when we disagree, when we disagree with the people in this room with other Christians, our disagreements should be handled differently than how the world handles disagreements. We don't deal with it through personal jabs we give the other the benefit of the doubt and we seek to love them in that moment. Maybe some of you are in relationship with another Christian who is contentious Uh, who just rubs you the wrong way and you don't seem to get along with. And how you handle that contention should promote peace and safety and a sense of togetherness that still preserves the unity found in Christ. It should not make the matter worse. It should not exacerbate the issue. So Psalm 14 unites us as followers of Christ who all have the opposition of a godless culture. We are to encourage one another and to strengthen one another. So I just want to conclude with this idea of what Paul and David are talking about. Paul looks back on this psalm and sees the prayer that David has for salvation. But when Paul talks about Psalm 14, he doesn't pray... For salvation, he tells us of the promise of salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. And later on, he'll write to Timothy in Colossians and he writes uh, something that I think pertains to us perfectly today as an encouragement for us, as instruction for us, um, and as a motivation for us this morning. Colossians 2 6 through 8 says, Therefore, as as, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. I think what we can learn also is this this is going to be with us for forever. David dealt with it Paul dealt with it, we're dealing with it, but we have Christ. Christ is our hope, and he is our refuge. It's okay to feel negative, it's okay to have moments of frustration about the world around us, and it's okay to talk about it to God as long as we land on our firm hope and faith in Christ, and that there is hope for the world around us as well that is found in Christ. Let's pray. God, again, we come before you and we're just so thankful that you have come and you have saved us, Lord. We're thankful for the work that you've done in our lives and the work that you're still doing in, in the world around us. I think it's easy to have a negative view that it's hopeless, uh, but, but with you, Christ, there is always hope and the ultimate hope. So God, I pray that you would equip us, that you would encourage us, that you would empower us to live for you, to learn how to stand firm uh, in our beliefs in you, in the world today, in this godless culture, that we would be yours um, and we would be a witness for you, God. And that even in our churches, our churches would be a witness of your goodness and of your saving grace. And God, that our hearts would be uh, so eager to pursue relationship with you so that when you are looking down from heaven, you see us looking back at you, eager to chase you and to pursue you. God, I pray that the other things in life that are contending to be number one, that are contending to be gods in our life, that you would help us to, to put those away, to, to get our priorities straight and to make sure that you are first and foremost, Um, that we are worshiping you all the time, that in our hearts it is you. We love you, Lord, and we give all this to you, and we pray this in your Son's name. Amen.